0: You know, there's nothing quite like a paradox uh, to cause us to think more deeply about life. Uh, You could define a paradox this way. Uh, It's a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement that, when investigated or explained, proves to be well-founded or true. Uh, For instance, look at this paradox. The more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. Now, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, how can you succeed by failing? Well, Thomas Edison will tell you he failed 10,000 times inventing the light bulb. But no one remembers him as a failure. You see, success comes from improvement. And improvement stems from failure. You can't short-circuit the process. How about this Paradox. The more honest you are about your faults, the more people think you're perfect. That seems to find the face of logic, doesn't it? But psychologists tell us the amazing thing about vulnerability is that the more comfortable you feel about not being great, the more people begin to think you are. That's amazing. What I love about a paradox is that it causes you to think differently. And by the way, Jesus was the master at using paradoxes. In fact, probably his most famous paradoxical f- uh, phrases are found primarily in one place in the scripture in a section known as the Sermon on the Mound. Now, did you know there are two versions of the Sermon on the Mount uh, for us in the New Testament? I mean, the first is the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. Uh, the second, kind of a um, an abridged version, you could say, is found in Luke chapter 6. And there's been a lot of debate throughout the centuries as to whether... Luke's account is describing the same thing that Matthew's is, or are they describing two different accounts on two different occasions in separate places? And that's led people to call Matthew's, uh, well, as you study Matthew's account, you'll discover that uh, Matthew has Jesus going up the mountain to deliver his address, the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke is different. He has Jesus going down to a level place to deliver his address. And that's caused people to think of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount as the Sermon on the Mount, but they've called Luke's the Sermon on the Plain. I happen to think they are describing the same account at the same time. Matthew's is a longer version. You could you could tell, you could call Luke's um, the Cliff Notes version of what Matthew says. And the thing I love about the Sermon on the Mount is that it causes you to think more deeply, to think differently about this life and the eternity that follows. In fact, turn with me to Luke's account in chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. He begins this way. And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with with a crowd of his disciples and great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were healed. And a whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out of him, and he healed them all. Now, we saw last week that Jesus spent the night on a mountain praying before choosing the twelve men who would accompany him as his apostles. And then he and this group of men, they come down to a level place, and it's there Jesus engages the multitudes. In fact, Luke tells us in his account that Jesus is, well, he's kind of overrun by the multitudes. I mean, there are people in need, people who are sick. I mean, people tormented by evil spirits. And amazingly, Luke tells us that Jesus heals them all. Now, now these miracles are really a a prelude into the message Jesus wants to deliver that has been called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I've really never liked that title for Jesus' most famous message. I mean, it's called that because of its location. But, but that would be like calling Chad's most famous message the message from the stage. But all Chad's messages are delivered from the stage. I mean, nothing in that title distinguishes it or uh, calls to memory the content of what was covered. I think a better title for the Sermon on the Mount would be the Sermon about the Kingdom. About the Kingdom. In fact, you might remember that when Jesus started his ministry, Matthew recorded this. He said, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. And then just shortly after that, uh, Jesus tells his followers... I must preach the kingdom of God in other cities. For this purpose, I've been sent. Now, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it would have conjured up uh, thoughts, ideas in people's heads. I, I mean, the zealots of Jesus' day would immediately thought about overthrowing the Roman government in the hopes that that would usher in God's kingdom. Uh, The Herodians of Jesus' day would have thought we've got to compromise with the Roman authorities in order to make room for God's kingdom. The Essenes of Jesus' day would have thought we need to separate ourselves from all this evil, make ourselves pure, then God will usher in his kingdom. But when Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I want you to change your mind about the way you think about God's kingdom. You see, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, well, he's not talking about a destination. He's not talking about heaven. He's not talking about a place you go when you die. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about God breaking into this world in a whole new way. He's talking about the impact of God's rule lived out in a flesh and blood life. His life. But, but, but it's, it's more than that. He, he's saying this new life, it's going to involve a new, evolve a new way of living. A different way of engaging with life that's going to feel like a paradox. But Jesus also wants us to know that this new life under the rule of his heavenly father is something that is available right now. In other words, the kingdom of God is not something you have to wait for, but it's something that you can enter into and begin experiencing right now, Jesus says, by engaging with me. In fact, I I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says this, Our faith is not a matter of our hearing what Christ said long ago and trying to carry it out. Rather, the real Son of God is at your side. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his life His Zoe life into you. He's beginning to turn the tin soldier into a living man. And the part of you that doesn't like it is the part that's still tin. Many of you know that I had to go in for another knee surgery this past month. And for some reason, the hospital decided to put a bed alarm under my mattress. So in the middle of the night, I get up to go to the bathroom. And you would have thought, I'm trying to escape from East Germany. All of a sudden, alarm goes off in the room. I can hear it out in the hall. There's a panel on the wall, and it's flashing. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. I thought, I, I, I'd better just sit here and wait for somebody to come turn all that off. So I sat and I waited and I waited and I waited. Nobody came. <laughs> I waited. I waited as long as I could wait. I couldn't wait any longer. So I got in my crutches. I got up and headed to the bathroom. And it was about that time the nurse flew in the door, looked at me and said, Mr. Daly, you get back into bed. <laughs> well... I I had had about all I could take at that point. And I'm not proud of it, but I let her have it. I, I I won't tell you what I said, but you need to know that there was an apology in the morning. And I got back to my bed and I sat on the edge of my bed for a moment and I just thought, oh, Doug, you acted like a child. You see, there's Still a lot of tin in me. Now, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says, I mean, people have struggled trying to make sense of it. In fact, one commentator uh, gave 12 different ways people have interpreted it over the years. Uh, Let me give you just a few of them. Uh, Some have taken it as a literal code of conduct that must be followed in order to be a real Christ follower. Uh, Others have said the Sermon on the Mound is, well, it's designed to drive you to despair. So you see your utter dependence upon God and your need for a Savior. Uh, Still, there are some that said the Sermon on the Mound is a standard for living in the future... When Jesus comes and establishes his millennial kingdom on this earth. Uh, still, there are some that say, well, no, the Sermon on the Mount is guidelines for nations and countries to follow so that they can be successful in engaging while on this earth. And then there's been some who've just said Sermon on the Mount can't be taken seriously and applied in our complex world today. I mean, how do you turn the cheek on a terrorist who wants to kill you and then your family? How do you give to anybody who asks? I mean, the TV evangelist alone would break us. So how are we to interpret the Sermon on the Mound? Well, I think what Jesus is doing in this message is he is painting a picture. It's a picture of the kind of life he makes possible. It's as if, well, he's holding up a travel guide, an adventure guide or brochure, and he's basically saying, look, here's what is possible. You interested? In fact, several years ago, uh, our family decided to spend an uh, extended vacation in the Colorado Rockies uh, we rented a cabin in the Rocky Mountain National Forest and we wanted to spend our time exploring the Rocky Mountains and the beauty of Colorado well one of the first things we did is we went down to the Visitors Bureau and we picked up this a guide for Colorado you could call it an adventure guide and I mean we opened it up and began thumbing through it And, I mean, I was amazed at all the things you can do in Colorado. I I mean, we could go whitewater rafting. We could climb a 14er. Uh, We could explore trails, hundreds of miles of trails. Uh, There was a narrow-gauge railroad uh, running from Durango to Silverton that we could ride on. Well, there was fly fishing, there was an abandoned gold mine that could be explored. I mean, as we thumb through it, there are just more and more things that were a possibility to do. Now, this travel guide, well, it, it wasn't the ticket to those things. It, it was simply an enticing description of the places that we could visit. But, but there's no way we could visit them all. Now, that's what I think is in Jesus' mind here. That's what I think he's doing in the text. He's painting a picture. It's a picture of what's possible. And as a result, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to know I think his teachings are more descriptive than prescriptive. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is not a series of commands that need to be followed. It's more like a picture of what's possible in this adventure God has you on in life. It's not a sermon focused on doing the right things as it is on being rightly connected, intimately associated with the one that can actually empower you to do the right things. And when you're intimately connected with Jesus, I mean, it's this kind of life he's describing in the Sermon on the Mount is what's possible is Jesus deals with the 10 in our lives and begins transforming us in the process. I mean, wish you could respond differently to someone who hurts you. Well, connect with the king and he can show you how to love your enemies. I mean, wish you had peace in the midst of profound grief. Well, engage with the king and he'll help you understand a different perspective. Or you can choose to live for yourself or live for the approval of others. I mean, make that your king and, well, you'll eventually end up enslaved. So it seems that the obvious question at this point of the people who have gathered to listen to Jesus is, so who's eligible for this adventure? Who's qualified to go on this journey? And that's exactly where Jesus wants to start in verse 20. Uh, But before we get there, I think it's important to know who's in the crowd listening to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, uh, historians tell us that in in an agrarian society, there were nine different classes of people. I mean, of course, there was the ruling class, that king and queen. There was, secondly, the governing class. that's made up of nobles and bureaucrats, officials. Thirdly, there's the retainer class, military, teachers, um, scribes and Pharisees. Now, these four First three classes of people make up just 5% of the total population of Israel. Now, following the third is the fourth class. They are the merchant class. They uh, trade in goods and services. And then there's the priestly class. Uh, They kind of are among the privileged. They make up 10% of the population. Now, Now, listen to this. Those five classes that I just mentioned, composing... Only fifteen percent of the population of Israel were considered the upper class they were the establishment the movers the shakers the bold the beautiful the blessed don 't forget that word you 'll hear it again the blessed now the remaining eighty five percent well they fell into three main or four main categories. There was a peasant class. They worked the land that they did not own and lived hand to mouth. Then came the artisan class made up of skilled workers like carpenters, tent makers, uh, bricklayers. Following them were, were the unclean. Uh, they were the servants, the shepherds, the prostitutes. And lastly, well, there were the expendables. Uh, They were the beggars, the criminals, the lepers, the people who just lived by their wits. Now, here's what I want you to see. Eighty-five percent of the population in Israel felt disqualified for God's blessing. That's who they are. And it's to this group, I mean, artisans, peasants, unclean, expendables, uh, Jesus is going to address when he talks about the poor in the opening statements. And it's to these people Jesus is dying to bring the good news of his kingdom. Now, the religious establishment held that, well, if you were sick and poor and the unclean, I mean, that, that alone was evidence that you were unqualified or unfit for God's blessing. They saw it as your lot in life and you just had to live with it. So you see, 85% of the population of Israel saw themselves as unfit for the kingdom of God. Are you seeing the crowd a little differently now? So when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's calling those people to think differently about the kingdom of God and who's eligible For God's blessing. Now, with that as our background, I think we can begin reading the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, by the way, verse 20. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you, when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy for indeed your reward is great in heaven for in the like, man- for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. So Jesus begins with a series of beatitudes. Now Did you know the word beatitude is Latin for blessing? That's where the word comes from. And to be blessed means you're happy. To be happy. To be fortunate. To be blessed meant that you uh, were a recipient of God's grace, God's favor. Now, I used to think the beatitudes were a list of things we had to strive to attain in order to get God's blessing. So... When you read, blessed are the the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, you start thinking, well, okay, I've got to strive to give up my possessions in order to receive the kingdom of God. And that's the way some people interpret that phrase. And they've taken a vow of poverty and refused to own anything. Uh, But others, uh, well, they've concluded, well, you really don't have to give it up physically just give it up emotionally. Just make sure you're you're not attached to it in any way. That's what he's talking about there. Really? I mean that 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 doesn't sound like good news. That sounds like confusing, frustrating news. Or you could take that same passage where. It, talks about the poor and there have been those who've said well that's a metaphor for your relationship with God so Jesus is saying what you really need to do is see yourself as spiritually poor spiritually bankrupt and then you can humbly submit to God's authority in your life now I'm not saying that it's not that the that those things are wrong I'm just saying I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to communicate here The Beatitudes are are not saying, if you do this, well, you get that. Jesus is not giving us a standard to strive for. Now, you've got to remember, the crowds, they're gathered around Jesus. I mean, 85% see themselves as people who are unfit for the kingdom of God. The spiritual elite see them that way, and that's the way they see themselves Uh, But Jesus, well, he wants to change all that. He wants them to know that the kingdom of God, this kingdom life he's going to be introducing, is available to anyone and everyone. So who exactly is Jesus talking about then? Well, he tells us. He begins with the poor. I mean, those who've long since declared bankruptcy, who can't make ends meet, who feel lost and fenced out when it comes to God. He's saying, I know you feel like you're unfit for the kingdom, but I'm here to tell you, I give the kingdom to people like you. And to those who are hungry, who feel left out in the cold, who can't seem to provide for themselves, nothing in life seems to satisfy. Jesus says to them... I tell you, come close and learn from me and you will begin to feel satisfied and fulfilled in ways you have never imagined. And then to those who weep, who feel sad inside, whatever the cause of their sorrow, maybe it's a failed marriage or a failed business or maybe a loved one who's passed away. And Jesus is saying, if you come and follow me, You'll find comfort, and trust me, you'll begin to laugh again. And to those who are put down and persecuted because of their association with Jesus, Jesus is saying, I know people mock you, they insult you, thinking you're off your rocker because, well, you are taking up with me. I want you to know that in the kingdom, there's going to be great reward for people just like you. Now, that's good news. I mean, that's great news. I don't know how many times I felt like, well, I've, I've blown it again with my kids trying to engage with them. Or, or I've gotten defensive with Patty. She's brought up something that she said, I said that was insensitive and it started an argument. Or I, I just succumbed to that temptation again that I, I didn't want to, but I just did. I'm just so glad in God's kingdom there can always be fresh starts for the broken, for the disqualified, for the failures, for those who are selfish. Now, you need to remember that what Jesus says here is going to stick in the throat of the religious elite. And that's why in this opening section known as the Beatitudes, it begins with four blessings, but it ends with four woes. The the word woe means watch out. It means to beware. And they begin in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep woe to you when men when all men speak well of you for so did their fathers to the false prophets now this woe is aimed at the spiritual establishment the spiritual elite it's aimed at those who are looking to find their blessing in money or food or in enjoyment, or the opinions of others. He's saying, hey, you guys, you're on a slippery slope. I'm warning you. You you keep on this trajectory, and, uh, well, your reward is going to be only temporary. It's not going to last. You're going to end up one day empty, hungry, mourning, weeping. All you got to do is look at those who supported the false prophets to see exactly what I'm talking about. So in, in this opening statement, the Beatitudes, I mean, Jesus is simply answering the question, who's qualified for the kingdom and its benefits? And the answer is clear. Anyone and everyone who engages with Jesus. You know, not so long ago, Uh, The the only form of electricity found in rural Arkansas uh, was in the form of lightning. But in 1937, that all changed. With the establishment of the Ozark Electric Cooperative, they began running power lines into the Ozark Mountains. And suddenly, electricity was available to every household and farm. Now, with the advent of electricity, a different kind of life presented itself. I mean, the fundamental issues and aspects of life began to change dramatically. I mean, it impacted everything. Hot and cold. Clean and dirty. Light and dark. But, But the people who lived in the Ozarks, well, they had to take the practical step of arranging for it and then relying on it. Now, now I can imagine the farmers living in the Ozarks uh, probably, you could say, heard the the advent of electrical current coming their way like this. Repent. In other words... Uh, Repent, electrical power is coming. Now, the word repent means to change your mind. It means to turn. In other words, repent. Repent about your kerosene lights and lanterns. Turn. Turn from your ice boxes and your cellars. Change your mind about your rug beating. And you're hand-sewing everything in order to embrace a whole new way of life, a better way of living. You see, the power that could make their lives far better was right there next to them. They just had to make the arrangements so they could utilize it. Now, I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, my Heavenly Father would like to empower you to live the kind of life you see in me. And so the kingdom of God is not something you enter when you die, but it's something you can experience here and now by allowing God access to your life and telling him, I want to live the kind of life you have for me to live. If you've never done that, I can't think of a better time to do it than right now. Father, thank you. Thank you for your paradoxical words and not just what was we looked at today, but what we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. As we study them, may they cause us to think more deeply about life. And begin seeing life from your perspective. And and may we find a life that is beyond what we could imagine because it's a life that you have created for those who put themselves under your authority and say, I want to live in a kingdom fashion. Guide us as we uh, study this in the future. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, I would love to thank you for coming. If this is your first time at Horizon, would you mind stopping by the hearth room? And we'd love to put a name with a face there. Uh, and, well, offering boxes are out in the hall if you care for that, uh, just to the left. Thanks for coming, and enjoy the rest of your day.